Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. and welcome to Talk Nerdy. I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. I want to thank everybody who supports the podcast in the many ways that you do by going to carasantamaria.com, by shopping in the Talk Nerdy store, by looking through my reading list online. Um, gosh, what else is there? Uh, by rating and reviewing via iTunes and Stitcher, and of course, by supporting the show financially, those of you who are able to do so. So I want to give a shout out this week to Brian Holden, Jeffrey Sewell, Chuck Pell, and Warren Rogers. The four of you, plus countless others, have made this episode of Talk Nerdy possible by visiting patreon.com slash talk nerdy and pledging to be a patron. Thank you guys all so much. Now, I'm really excited about this week's episode. You know how much I love it when I get to have a physicist. A, bleh, see, I have so much to learn, I can't even say the word. When I get to have a physicist on the podcast, especially an astrophysicist, and this week was just such a pleasure to have Dr. Chiara Mingarelli to teach me everything, well, actually, probably, honestly, just scratch the surface, of gravitational waves. It's a real treat. In a couple places, I got a little lost. I tried to stay on track, and hopefully um, it all makes sense to you guys, and it helps you delve a little bit into a topic that, I don't know, we just don't often get to talk about. So without further ado, here she is, Dr. Chiara Mingarelli. Chiara, thank you so much for making the trek all the way from Pasadena, land of the Big Bang Theory. 
My pleasure. <laughs> I'm looking forward to our chat. We, um, let's see, we met very, very recently at our friend, Dave, our mutual friend, David, uh, David, Jason Goldman's birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were there with Katie Mack. So funny because Jason and Katie have both been on the podcast. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they were actually early on the podcast because we used to have these fun Cosmos viewing parties. And Katie was in town for, for one of them. So I stole her while she was in Wonderful. town. Wonderful. Good yeah. for you. Um, and so it was cool because when we were chatting, we realized that we both recently recorded a segment with Megan Amram. That's right. For, for Smart Girls. For, for Smart the new Girls. Experimenting with Megan Amram. Should be so much fun. I actually was um, uh, tweeting back and forth with her the other day, so I think we're going to get her on the podcast too, which will Wonderful. be Wonderful. Really yeah. Awesome. Um, so that's cool. That's like a weird connection that we didn't know about. But then when you told me that you are um, a physicist, that you're over at Caltech, that you work on gravitational waves, but you said you're not a cosmologist. So no. I'm like really confused about this now. And I'm really excited to dig into what are gravitational waves? Do we know for a fact that they exist? What is the evidence that supports them? All that good stuff. We did talk about gravitational waves really briefly when Lawrence Krauss was on the podcast and we talked about bicep two, but that was when the finding was first announced and everybody's really, really excited about it. Okay. <laughs> um, and so we can get into that, but we don't have to. But the first thing I want to ask you is, and this is probably the question that'll carry us through the whole thing. What the hell is a gravitational wave? Okay. Well, that's a great question and a good place to start. So let me start by trying to paint a picture for you. Mm -hmm. So we see the universe these days through this Einsteinian uh, framework where space-time itself is like a big sheet of, of lycra or spandex. It's this pliable kind of material that you can stretch and squash. Okay. And so that's like when you see the pictures of a black hole or something, it's the 2D being stretched into the 3D space and the little cone kind that's of That's right. Down. That's right. So that's like a gravity well. Gotcha. So this is the new way of thinking about gravity. Back in the day when uh, Newton came up with these Newtonian laws, we thought that gravity was this magical force between two things that have mass and it, they make them come together. Yeah, see, that's kind of what I thought it was. I but, think that's what most people still think it is. Most I will, people in the sure. general population. And, and that's, you know, that's partly our fault for not communicating these, you know, new paradigms properly. But it's really not that difficult to think about gravity the way that Einstein did. And that's the picture um, that you just referred to, this, this well. So gravity is the curvature of this space-time. So things that have mass make these little wells in the fabric of space-time, and things fall into the wells, and that's gravity. And so it's almost like a mathematical or kind of a geometric explanation for what Newton was saying, right? That this big heavy thing and this big heavy thing, when they're near to each other, there's an attractive force. But really, it's that when there's a big heavy thing out there in space, it bends space-time. Absolutely. That is exactly right. It makes gravity just, a, it's a geometric feature of okay. the universe. So, so that's gravity, but what's a gravitational wave? That's right. So, so it was important to try to understand thinking about gravity in that mm -hmm. way. So now that we can accept that gravity um, is the bending of this fabric of space-time, now you can imagine shaking that fabric of space-time and little waves come out like little oh. waves traveling on the surface of the ocean. That's and why you said it was like lycra. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time, and they travel at the speed of light. And why, it, 
I mean, okay, so so kind of very naive question. Does space-time constantly ripple because it's always in flux? Or is it something where, you know, a massive body like a planet or a, or a star has to physically move in order to create a ripple? Like, why does something wave? Yeah, that's a great question. So the gravitational waves that I look for uh, come from massive bodies like supermassive black holes that are starting to orbit each other. Ah. So galaxies have supermassive black holes at their center. Our very own Milky Way hosts a supermassive black hole, which is about 4.6 million times the mass of the sun. That's big. It's pretty big. It's (laughs) It's pretty big. big. Pretty hard for me to (laughs) envision what that even means, but yeah, that's really big. It's huge. It's huge. And so um, if, you know, or actually when the Milky Way collides with another galaxy, say Andromeda, the supermassive black hole at the center of Andromeda and the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way will start to orbit each other and they'll start to merge. And that merging of black holes causes these ripples of space-time, these gravitational waves. But the ones that I study come from very far away. So by the time those ripples get here, they're kind of like just little tiny waves lapping at the side of a lake Mm. and not, you know, a massive tsunami that they might have been when they started out. So they really do decay across distance. Absolutely. And so when... One over the distance. Is it... uh, A little math there. I love it. Just a little math. Just a little air math. You couldn't see that. For the the interested listener. (laughs) And so is it just things like supermassive black holes that cause gravitational waves? Or does the Earth orbiting the sun, does the moon orbiting orbiting the Earth? I mean... All of these things produce gravitational waves. They do. So anything that has gravity... Yeah, any accelerating masses produce gravitational waves. So you and I, if we were to start spinning around like the, at the end of some sort of Scottish dance, right, we would make little tiny gravitational waves. Really? Even yeah. even something as small as us? That's right. That's oh, cool. right. It just okay. makes really, really small gravitational really small waves that don't really affect anything. So then does that become a problem if you're trying to look at, for example, supermassive black holes from, you know, like just tons of light years away but then you have signals coming from our own solar system that are bombarding you too how do you sort out what comes from where oh that's a great question so gravitational waves uh all have different wavelengths just like how light or electromagnetic radiation uh for people who know uh, a little bit more about that Mm -hmm. there's um you know there's visible light and there's very low frequency light and there's very high frequency light. Um, We've got this whole spectrum that you can think about that people are used to thinking about. Um, With gravitational waves, it's the same thing. You have very high frequency gravitational waves, which come from, for example, two solar mass black holes spiraling each other. So while I personally am interested in supermassive black holes, there's black holes pretty much Um, with any mass that you can think of. So Mm -hmm. from one solar mass to a million, some of them are a billion solar masses. So like when our, well, I know this is a totally different question, but when our our sun dies, will it cause a black hole? It won't because it's not heavy enough. Lame. So yeah, (laughs) it's not, it's not, our our sun uh, isn't massive enough to make a black hole. So it will eventually puff up to become a red giant. And then all of that gas will get blown away. And what will be left is um, 
its core, which by then will be this kind of carbon oxygen ball called a white dwarf. Okay. Um, but those can also be really beautiful because you can think of it almost like a giant diamond, right? You've got this kind of crystalline structure of really, really compressed carbon. And so even though our sun's not going to turn into a black hole, you think, well, it might turn into a beautiful diamond, and that's probably just as good. That's more lovely, I would say. It's yeah. a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful diamond that stays there for, 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 you know, it's all understated, of the, you know, <laughs> for all of the dead animals and, and plants and people on earth to enjoy. Um, no, that's great. Cause it's not, it doesn't become like a, like a, I don't even know what a black hole is. It's just a nothing. It's like a, it's an inversion of, yeah. Like, so what is so, it really? Yeah. So black holes are just what happens at the end of a life of something like a, a star, that's maybe 20 to 25 times the mass of the sun or, or more so when it starts So it's not about how life. big it is. It's about how like dense it is. It's about its mass. Yeah, okay. It's about, it's about its mass. The mass is the most important thing. And what's, what's interesting, um, what makes black holes black is the fact that light can't escape from them. So there's this concept uh, called escape velocity. So how hard do you have to throw something so that what comes up doesn't come down again? Right, so for the Earth, for example, the escape velocity is about 11 kilometers per second. And so that's like how fast a spaceship has to go in order to not be stuck in orbit or to fall right back down. Well, there's a few levels of complexity, but essentially, yes, okay. that's, that's the right way of thinking yeah. about it. And the escape velocity of the sun, for example, is 611 kilometers per second. So you have to go really fast to get outside the well that we're all in, mm -hmm. right, around the sun. So you can think of our of of all the planets around the sun just being in these stable orbits and those those penny machines that sometimes you have at the airport, right? Where you make donations and they spiral and spiral really, really fast. Yeah. So we're just in a really stable part of that. We're not actually going to fall in uh, to the sun. We're in a stable orbit. And that's the thing that's always been kind of confusing to me that uh, actually Jen Wheelett, who um, has also been on the podcast, made a statement one time when we were at this science event. And I think that we're so used to this concept of like black holes suck things in. They're like giant vacuums. And she's like, yeah, they don't do that. No. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no. In, in a sense, well, they're definitely not holes. And they're only black because the light coming out of them is like water coming out of a fountain. It kind of goes up, but it doesn't have enough energy. It can't go fast enough to escape the gravity, to escape that well. So it falls back in on itself. So it's a real thing. Like it's a real tangible thing in space time. Absolutely. That, and there's stuff going on in there that yeah. we, that's hard for us to observe because there's no light and there's no signal to tell us. That's right. But we, we can say because of the way that everything around it acts. Yeah. As probably a black hole right there. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes when things get close to a black hole, they get torn apart uh, mm -hmm. into these, you know, into their component particles. And those things can get heated up and emit light. And so we can see these, um, these disks around black holes, like maybe uh, if people saw Interstellar, mm -hmm. there was an accretion disk, is what it's called, uh, around Gargantua, this black hole. And so the light can escape from those because it's on the right side of the black hole's event horizon, which is the point of no return. And that's really kind of that that edge. And we think of it as being some sort of a vacuum, but that's not a vacuum like a vacuum, but like a vacuum cleaner, like something that sucks things out from around it. But that's not an appropriate way to think of it because if you're outside of the event horizon, you're cool. 
Exactly. Most <laughs> of the time. Most of yeah. the time. Exactly. So you have these these stable circular orbits that you can have around black holes and that changes if the black hole is spinning or not, for example. So those are really interesting things. But one thing to remind you that black holes don't suck is that, <laughs> is that um, if you were to replace the sun with a black hole of the same mass, we wouldn't really notice any difference. Except that we couldn't have life because we wouldn't have photosynthesis. But other than that, well, I think that, <laughs> I think that that's arguable. I think really? that there may be, yeah, life without photosynthesis. Yeah, that's true. We'd probably have to reorganize. We could have like a, I recently had an astrobiologist on and we were talking about Europa. Like we could have a whole new system. Exactly. With, with tidal energy yeah. and all that. We'd, we'd probably, we'd probably die, you know, if it happened pretty oh, suddenly. Oh, yeah. We'd I mean, we fucked, would be but, screwed. Yeah. Um, but what about things like the extremophiles that live in the vents yeah. at the bottom of the ocean? They don't and, care if there's a sun or not. Totally. And then there would be just whole new life forms that evolve out of that so you're right you're right we'd, we'd be cool we'd be cool but wow. uh, i might notice right but but the yeah living in california i think we would we, miss it the most we'd probably <laughs> yeah we'd, we'd notice but but you're right there'd be organisms that didn't notice at all that's really cool so we wouldn't get any clue what about like um mercury would mercury notice would mercury be like in the black hole uh no i mean so mercury would be uh the let's see no, the event horizon uh, of the black hole it's that would be tight. made by the sun would be, yeah, it's fairly small. So gotcha. the, the light crossing time for that is about five microseconds. So it's, it's, it, it would be a very small black hole. It'd be kind of just where the sun is now. Yeah. And yeah. so the only thing that you need to think about really when it comes to gravity and the mass of things is how much it deforms the space time around it. So it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the Empire State Building or if it's the equivalent mass, you know, in some sort of lead uh, object or the only thing that's important is the mass. And so it can be the sun that's making the deformation of the space. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply time or it could be something else a black hole a neutron star mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what's important is its mass gotcha a weird kind of side question as i make you talk more about black holes see you didn't know i would just be asking a thousand questions about black holes you're like i love black holes oh good okay good um 
and this doesn't even have anything to do with black holes, but it has to do with all of these forces and the spinniness. And see, this is me, the biologist. Like, you know, the spinniness of the things. Is I mean, is that why all the bot not all, but most of the bodies that we think of throughout the cosmos are round? Because that's just the natural shape that things would take when they have these forces on them and when they're in orbit and when they're, you know, being kind of pulled on by other things. Because it feels like most everything is round. Yeah, so this is the most energy-saving shape. Like, if you were the absolute laziest thing in the universe and you had to pick a shape, you would pick a sphere. That's this legit. Is, this I, is... I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the way to, to save the most energy. This is the absolute bottom of the barrel. This is the easiest way to be. Yeah, but when you're, when you're spinning, sometimes you get a little bit non-spherical. Like mm -hmm. the Earth, for example, is squished a little bit because it's spinning, right? So it's squished a little bit at the poles. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it looks round to us, um, like on maps, because yeah. that's easier to draw. But yeah, it's more or less round. But spinning can take its toll. It's funny because we always think, I, I think that when we're in school, when we're young, and you know, a lot of us who are around the same age, I'm 32, um, went to school around the same time that I did, we those of us who didn't really focus on physics, um, maybe who were afraid or who were, had the luxury in our minds at the time of choosing, you know, well, can I take this or can I take that? I'm going to take oceanography because it sounds easy. Also not easy. When I was in college, by the way, side note, I think I've said this before, I was totally afraid of science before I discovered it. And so I took three courses because I was required by my um, university to take three science classes. And at least one of them had to be a life science and at least one of them had to be a physical science. Woo! So um, I took uh, oceanography. I took uh, stellar astronomy. Wonderful. Yeah, which was really fun. And I took, uh, I like to say I took paleontology, but in the course manual, it was actually listed as dinosaurs in all capital letters with an exclamation point. I would have taken that. Yeah. It's like, that how sounds do you not awesome. Take, you're going through the course manual and you're like, dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Yeah, you have to. So that, Absolutely. And, and for a lot of us who I think um, had that resistance or that fear or whatever it might have been to science, and you know, some of us were lucky enough to come back around to it as adults, some of us are still a little, um, I think that one of the things that we remember from learning about physics because we all took kind of physical like a physical science class when we were in elementary school or something and maybe we didn't actually take physics with calculus or anything as an advanced mm -hmm. science we learned a lot of newtonian physics like yeah. we learned a lot of very classical we didn't really start to understand uh you know, general relative, what we really didn't understand was quantum mechanics. I don't know very many people at all that learned quantum mechanics before, unless they were seniors who took like a higher level physics class, which is I a think, bummer. I think I can paraphrase Feynman by saying that anyone who claims that they understand quantum mechanics is lying. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> which is why high school physics teachers were like, nah, we're going to talk about the apple and the tree and Newton. Um, no. And, and also I think part of it is because of how old we are. I think when we were young, we were looking at, you know, the classical drawings of atoms with the electron cloud orbits. And, and there was just a way that there's a static way that we looked at things. And I think that one of the approaches to teaching was this idea of like, things are this way. This is how Earth looks. This is how whatever looks. This is how blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's because of the Big Bang and it's because of the blah, blah, blah. But we didn't really have this approach, which I think is a much more kind of new and fun approach to science. Um, I mean, it's not new to scientists, but I think it's new in the educational realm of like, it's detective work. 
Like, oh, the earth has this Absolutely. weird shape. Let's figure out why. Yeah. And that- or this is a rule or this is a law. Go out and test it. I mean, how many people have actually measured all of the angles inside a triangle, you know, exactly. to see if they add up to 180 degrees? And it's hard. You're right. Um, <laughs> I'm like, yep, that sounds right. Um, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to learn things from I. Some people just have bad memories. All the people who have really good memories. They went to med school. Like that's what they had to learn all this crap and they had all the mnemonics and they just had to memorize a bunch of stuff. A lot of people have a hard time with, and so the way we remember things is like, I remember taking a, an electrophysiology course and it was the first time I had ever learned about circuits and having to draw. And I was like, me, the electron. And so I'd like <laughs> flow through the circuit to understand the difference between a, a capacitor and, you know. And that's a great way to think about it. Sometimes I think my, of myself as a photon, a light particle. Exactly. To see, like, what would you see if you were a photon traveling around a black hole? Like, what would it look like? And where would you, where could you go? And yeah, where would where you could get you caught go? up? In? Exactly. And I think that that's such a, a smart way to do it that we sometimes are are missing when we're younger is this kind of first person perspective or this like, okay, you tell me that this is a law or you tell me that this is just the way it is, but why? why? And, and I completely encourage that kind of, uh, that kind of approach. It's so important to develop, in my opinion, your own personal relationship with science or, or with physics. When I was a kid, I loved hearing about black holes. Like you just couldn't tell me enough. And I couldn't believe that people might one day pay me to study black holes. And as soon as I figured out that that was an option, I was hooked. I was like, why would you ever want to do anything else? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> why Why would I want to do anything else? Uh, so it's something that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I'm not a fan of memorization. Mm. I think that, you know, some things you have to memorize, but only really basic things. And and then it becomes more of an intuition. And it's important to question things that don't follow that intuition, either to shape your intuition because it was, you know, slightly misguided previously, or to really get that deeper learning. And once you can make all of those connections and 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 really develop your own relationship with science and there's nothing that you can't do. Yeah, and that's really how a lot of big discoveries and whether they're theoretical discoveries or they're kind of observable discoveries, that's how a lot of them really happened was like some person was like, yeah, I don't really buy it. Like I know that's what everybody says and I know that's how it's supposed to work, but it kind of doesn't seem to fit with this one idea I have. And then they look more and more and they go, oh, there's, you know, there's an exception to this rule. Or like, I see this rule only applies when you're talking about things of a certain size or a certain exactly. speed. And this is what one of the differences between uh, Newtonian gravity and Einsteinian gravity in that you can, in very weak gravitational fields, recover Einstein's, uh, sorry, Newton's laws, mm. right? And But it turns out that it's just a very special case of this much more general framework. It's because we were thinking from this kind of evolutionary humanistic perspective, which is like, how does gravity seem to work on Earth to my body and my eyes and all of the things that I'm, you know, doing my experiments with? And that's really the first stage, right, of science is to observe just what's around us. Of course. And then we get more you know, cool toys and we develop better tools with better resolution. We start to go, oh, shit gets weird when you leave the planet. Exactly. <laughs> not even, you know, it's it's controversial um, whether or not Einstein actually believed that gravitational waves even existed theoretically. 
there was a lot of confusion uh, when these when the field equations came out, which is this general framework of of general relativity. And it was so tough that you know people kept making mistakes. Einstein made mistakes, everyone made mistakes, and they couldn't understand if gravitational waves were just some sort of weird mathematical thing that mm -hmm. came out of the equations, or if they were physical and detectable. And actually, it wasn't until um, the Hulse-Taylor pulsar was discovered, which is a pulsar with a neutron star around it, and it was found that its orbit decayed exactly according to the predictions um, that gravitational wave emission would make. So we know how their orbits would be in Newtonian gravity. You don't really expect much to change. However, if you're in the Einsteinian framework, these bodies are emitting gravitational waves and that energy comes at the expense of the orbit. So the orbit shrinks. Okay. And by studying this neutron star pulsar binary, the Hulse-Taylor pulsar, over around 10 years, uh, they discovered that it was shrinking at the exact rate of gravitational wave emission and won the Nobel Prize in 1993. So we know that gravitational waves exist, um, but this is, most people claim, an indirect detection. Gotcha. So if we saw the effect, we know that it's shrinking like it should, but we haven't actually measured the stretching and squashing of space-time that the gravitational waves cause. So what, were, what was actually being measured there? So they were, they, were, they were figuring out what the closest approach of these two uh, neutron stars were. So a pulsar is a neutron star with its uh, magnetic field axis misaligned with its rotation axis. So it looks like a lighthouse. As it spins around, it uh, turns this rotational energy into radio beams and it pulses at you, right? So, so, so each it's rotation like a is like a wink. Like a ah, lighthouse. And instead of giving off light, it's giving off radio waves. Yeah, which is light just uh, in a different part of the of the electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah, we just so, need something different to detect it than That's ice. right. That's right. So like Arecibo, for example, this really big um, radio telescope that you may have seen in GoldenEye, you know, that's... It's like satellite dishes, right? Or yeah. Am I wrong? Well, yeah. They look like satellite <laughs> yeah. dishes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, yeah, it's funny. That's a telescope. Like these, we don't think about that. We think of like telescopes. a telescope is like a, it's got to have a lens and you got to look at it. But that's not. There's a ton of different kinds of telescopes. Exactly. All all that telescopes do is that they focus this incoming radiation, right? And so with radio waves, they have very long wavelengths, mm -hmm. and so you need really big dishes to focus them. And with optical uh, light then those are shorter wavelengths. And so you just need, you know, something that looks like the telescopes that we use um, in Hawaii, for example, to, mm -hmm. to look at. And with if you want to go to really, really short wavelengths like X-rays or gamma rays, then you have to start getting tricky because they'll just tend to go through whatever detector you have because they have so much energy. And that's why they have certain detectors that are like buried under the earth. Yeah, or some that are even in space. Gotcha. Right? So if you look at the... Um, the Chandra telescope in space has this really interesting way of, of focusing x-rays, right? You have these kind of concentric circles, which try to just coax um, x-rays into grazing the side of them and, and focusing it. But it's, it's tough work because they have so much energy. It's hard to stop them. Mm -hmm. But th I guess the thing that's confusing to me still is I get the electromagnetic spectrum in a general sense, because yeah. 
you learn about it in biology, right? Like sure. even though it's a it's a phys it's not even like a physics principle or a biology. It's a it's a it's a fundamental principle that we all kind of understand that thing there is um, radiation out there, and based on the shape and size of the wave or how fast the wave is and how high the um, wavelength is uh, or the uh, amplitude is, we can measure it in different ways, right? And there's you know two different ends, but our gravitational waves they're not electromagnetic are they no they're not they're they're gravitational radiation it's confusing instead of electromagnetic <laughs> radiation so it's, are there other kinds of radiation that is not electromagnetic like gravitational waves yeah gravitational radiation is not electromagnetic are, radiation it is totally different are there other things that are also radiation that are not electromagnetic or gravitational or gravitational yeah. I don't. I don't know. Maybe. I think that's why it's confusing I to I people. I don't think so, but we're so used to the concept of a wave, yeah, being something that, like light, like light, right? Or I guess sound. Yeah, yeah and I'm, sound waves, I think, are one of the best analogies mm -hmm. for gravitational waves because while we can see things in the universe with our telescopes, with gravitational waves, it's like hearing things. So it's like, you know, suddenly turning up the volume and being able to not only see the universe, but hear it, you know, right before two compact objects like black holes or black holes and neutron stars merge, they have this characteristic chirp that happens and it goes, huh. whoop. <laughs> and you can see that signal and you kind of can, quote unquote, put a sound to it. Like you can, you can, you can put a sound to it because it, um, it has a very specific frequency. So those... Uh, gravitational waves for the smaller objects like black holes and neutron stars when they merge um, are in the kilohertz range. Huh. And so if if we could hear gravitational waves, then you would hear a whoop ah, they sing signal. to you. I love exactly. that. That's so cool. And, you know, I've seen really beautiful examples in IMAX movies before at museums. There was one playing at the um, New York, the Museum of Natural History in New York, the last time I went, which was maybe a year and a half ago, um, it was at the same time that they had a dark matter, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking, planetarium show with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson voicing. And then they also had this great, and I, I don't remember what it's called, maybe you guys can tweet me and tell me, but it was this great um, uh, IMAX movie about kind of the unseen universe. So they had all these beautiful camera tricks. So they did a lot of high speed and also low speed photography. They did a lot of cool stuff with IR and with x-rays. And I do remember there being a scene where they tried to kind of illustrate sound waves coming off of everything and bombarding and decaying and and you know they kind of drew them as these ethereal ripples in the in the what we saw visually and it's so crazy i mean we would be we would have that problem that people who get um their cataracts removed sometimes have where when they first see again after they haven't had sight for quite some time they have um uh, or especially people who are congenitally blind they often will keep their eyes closed even after they have their sight restored because they they say it's noisy it's too noisy when their eyes are open because they're not used to sa that much input mm -hmm. i think that you know if we were adapted to see all of this stuff it would just be way too we couldn't make sense of the of the world yeah so it's interesting how scientists have developed specific tools and specific ways to use those tools to receive the signals that they're looking for and make sense of things that you can't necessarily see, you can't necessarily hear. So I want to take a quick break um, to thank the sponsor of today's episode. And then when we come back, that's where I want to pick up is how do you detect 
a gravitational wave. All right, we'll be right back with Dr. Chiara Mingarelli. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we are back. And before we left, we were talking about this idea of gravitational waves being something that some people say or that technically you can only indirectly detect, even though it's pretty obvious that that is what you're detecting. And so that's kind of something I want to understand a little bit better. Because when you read the Wikipedia page... Yeah, I did that. I um, should I should edit that. <laughs> it does Sorry. kind of sound a bit like it's a theoretical concept. Okay. Which is something that, so so that's why too, when I was like, ooh, we could talk about bicep too, and we could talk about, and you were like, well, you're like, yeah, we'll talk about all of that. But also I'm not a cosmologist. And then I was like, well, I don't understand. Why, yeah. How do you, so like, what would you say is your area of physics? I am a gravitational wave astrophysicist. Astrophysicist. And yeah. you specifically focus on gravitational waves. Gotcha. Because cosmology right. specifically, um, among other things, focuses on the early universe, right? Yeah, the evolution of the universe, how we got here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, generally and speaking, but its structure, if it's open, closed, if it's flat, you know, the kind of... The really big picture stuff is cosmology. And it's often very theoretical in nature. That, I mean, there is experimental work being done in that realm, of course. Like, that's what the Large Hadron Collider is all about, is trying to look for these different fields and, and trying to understand what's going on at a quantum level to help us understand the early universe in some aspects. But that's, Yeah, that's one of the applications, definitely. But there, for, for cosmology, there are uh, special experiments as well, like BICEP2 that you mentioned, or mm -hmm. Planck. Uh, which later on came around and and couldn't reproduce um, the bicep two results, and that's how we know that, or that's, um, well, yeah, I guess that's how we know that they're they didn't actually detect yeah. these primordial gravitational waves. So that's what they were looking for in bicep two was they were looking for evidence of primordial wave kind of signatures from the early universe that would have validated a lot of. Um, inflation theory like a lot of aspects of inflationary theory yeah that's right so right after the big bang like 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the big bang so pretty quick, pretty quick. yeah <laughs> pretty pretty fast yeah pretty much immediately after the big bang um was a really special time in the universe where 
quantum mechanics and general relativity were acting at the same time in the same space. So usually we think of general relativity as encompassing, you know, the motion of, uh, you know, really gravitationally, like really heavy things, like really massive things you need general relativity to describe. So, you know, black holes that are in spiraling or about to merge, um, you, you need uh, general relativity after a certain point to describe, you know, the evolution of, of the system. You need general relativity um, and special relativity in some cases if you're looking at things that are going close to the speed of light to describe how um, your, your experiences are different depending on your reference frame. It mm -hmm. really kind of takes away the idea that there's anywhere special, right? We're all just in different places and there's no absolute, you know, we're all just behaving relative to each other, but there's no absolute place where you can be. There's no, you know, um, special place where there's an observer who's watching everything in a, in a position that you can always refer to. Yeah. Which is, I can be that special place. You could be that special place. Which is why those conversations about the edge of the universe get really mind fucky when you're talking about <laughs> general and spe special relativity. But, but this idea of, um, of quantum mechanics also oh, yeah, acting yeah, yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time. Sorry, I totally got no. So you got excited. <laughs> it's exciting. Thinking yeah. About so that. so this is was a very special time, and the Big Bang caused gravitational waves back then, and then those gravitational waves in turn caused these uh, patterns in the charged particles that were around back then, and then inflation blew them up. Right. So inflation took something that was incredibly small and then made it massive. And, you know, the universe is still expanding uh, and accelerating, but obviously this is a different, you know, uh, phase of, of the universe. But anyhow, what I'm trying to say is that those gravitational waves made this imprint in those primordial uh, charged particles. And that imprint, that pattern, was then blown up and then were the, the bicep two... Um, experiment was looking for that very particular pattern in the sky in in uh the polarization of the cosmic microwave background and so that's that picture that we said the cmb that's that picture that we sometimes see that looks like it's it's a map of the sky that almost looks like the fuzz on your tv but it's all like in hyper color right it's like green yeah. and red and 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 blue and so what that is really is kind of like a picture from what we've gathered of the early universe based on the signals that we can detect today. Yeah, so the so you're right. The cosmic microwave background uh, radiation is from around 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Oh, yeah, there is that whole thing where like, a, everything was too um, opaque. That's right. On. So even, even photons, even light particles were all part of this like plasma. And... The, they couldn't escape. It had to cool down enough mm. for the light to escape from this cosmic goo. And that happened around 380,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> I love how we know. It's so funny, too, because I love how it's like, you know, around this time. But it's like the math really tells us and a lot of the data that we've collected. It's like to the second. It's like pretty <laughs> crazy how, how we know exactly when things happened so freaking long ago. 
that yeah i mean i'm not i'm not sure about to the second it's not my field of specialty maybe you know better than i do but that whole thing about the the first fluctuation the 10 oh yeah, to yeah. The, like that's to the well, 10 really to the small minus fraction 35 of a second. that's impressive yeah. Absolutely. Impressive. I'm I'm impressed by my <laughs> colleagues who are cosmologists all the time. What they do is is really amazing. But what you do is also really amazing because you instead of having this kind of detective hat to figure out what happened then are wearing your detective hat to try and understand what's happening right now or maybe not right now because that's a weird thing about physics more, too more right? or less it's much more right now than cosmology more right now <laughs> but it is true that when you look at signals that you're looking at like really old signals right like yeah, in general by the time they get here they're old but again that comes into this whole reference frame right so some of the stars that that we see in the night sky might not be there now but now does it really mean anything it's a weird it's, <laughs> it's something that we forget but it is kind of a cool philosophical thing to remember is that we're looking at the night sky as it was when each of those individual points of light gave off that that yeah. those photons from however far away so the farther away the stars are the older That's they right. generally are that we're looking at that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, the older, yeah, the older the light is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Not the older the stars are. The older the light is. Good call. So there could be like if we see a supernova, like we're detecting something that like already happened a really long time ago. Usually. Yeah, I mean it. It depends on how far away it is. You're mm -hmm. right. So something like the the crab pulsar was um, observed around a thousand A.D. Mm -hmm. and that was a supernova, and it was so bright that you could see it during the day. Wow. And so I think that the Europeans were very bad at recording it, but the Chinese <laughs> were awesome. They were writing it down. They were taking observations. And that's where we discovered one of the first pulsars because that is a supernova remnant. And so when it was discovered, they were like, oh my gosh, we know when that happened because the Chinese wrote about it. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so we could, we, we actually know when it happened on earth. And then, you know, you can test these theories that tell you about how old these objects are. And so if you do the theoretical back of the envelope calculation to calculate how old the crab pulsar is, you get something like 1,300 years old. Um, but we know that it actually happened in 995 AD. Which is pretty freaking good, that's right? Like that's insane. that's going that's going from a theoretical like we think it happened around then kind of back of the envelope calculation to being in recorded text in history. And that's so what what a cool thing that we have these kind of I would say probably minimal examples of really um, well recorded sort of astronomical. That's not the right word. Astrological. Astronomical is the right astronomical word. is the right word. That's so funny because we use that as like that's astronomical, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> it's astronomically large, but yeah, yeah that is like it's a great superlative. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so it's it's pretty crazy that we have these handful of kind of recordings because the truth of the matter is a lot of what you have to work with in your field is like really new. Like in the, it's in, very new. Well, I mean, if you think about the human about, history, I mean, yeah. it's if, like if you think that the Nobel Prize was given for indirect gravitational wave detection in 1993, right? That 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 is not long ago. It's not. But what it, we're doing is is so new. I mean, it, this is the centennial actually of of general relativity. It's it's been around for a hundred years, and so. A lot of us are thinking, oh, we really got to get the fire under our butts and detect gravitational waves. It's been 100 years. But actually, if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of 
it was really like mathematically really heavy stuff. And, you know, some, some scientists like to say that a good graduate student these days understands general relativity better than Einstein ever did. Mm -hmm. And that, that may or may not be true, but um, there was a lot of stuff to get right at first. And now that that stuff's been figured out and that the images in our mind are a lot clearer, now I think we're really ready to move forward and make these first detections. Yeah, because not only has the math improved and not only have the theories been worked out by so many different minds, you also have literally like physical tools that you didn't have back then. You have actual experimental evidence that you couldn't get back then because nobody had thought to build the thing that you needed to test it. Like that's such a cool thing yeah. about science. And it's funny because like you were saying, the Nobel prize was given what in 93 for the um, quote indirect detection of mm -hmm. these gravitational waves. And I'm sure because it's your field and when you step away from it, you go, yeah, it wasn't that long ago, but within your field, you're like, Oh, that's ancient history. <laughs> like we're, we're way beyond that now. <laughs> so that's, that's the cool thing to me is like, how is it? And we kind of mentioned it with the um, the pulsar uh, and the neutron star. Is that what you said? Yeah, <laughs> pulsar. A pulsar is a neutron star. Gotcha. It's just a very special kind of of neutron star. And so, so in that binary system, uh, yeah, was the Taylor pulsar. One of them was a pulsar. One was a pulsar. Gotcha. One was a neutron star. Actually, since then, uh, some of my colleagues have discovered a double pulsar. Where Ooh. both of them are pulsars, and so you can do really, really precise tests of general relativity, which put the Hulse-Taylor pulsar to shame. Actually, my colleague Marta Bourget discovered this. She's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. You'll never know. The first time she told me that she discovered the double pulsar, I think I laughed because I thought that some really important <laughs> old dude yeah. had done it because that's my implicit bias. But which, really, she's a young woman who's lovely. <laughs> And she's like, yeah, I did that. Whatever. She's like, yeah, Let's I get did drinks. that. That was my PhD project. Hilarious. No. Yeah. And, and so that's the other thing that I think is, is fascinating to think about is that you are in many ways limited by these kind of astronomical events lining up the right way. Like there are things yeah. you can't measure unless something passes in front of something at just the right time or it spins in just the right, you know, way that you can get the signal. Yeah. So I haven't really spoken about detection yet, but we can go into that a little bit. Yeah. So my own work involves pulsar timing arrays. And what that is, is that we have this array of, of pulsars. So again, they're neutron stars, which are somewhat rapidly spinning. And the magnetic field axis is misaligned with the spin axis mm -hmm. so that every rotation, you see this kind of lighthouse beacon sweep around. Now, in particular, the pulsars that we use are called millisecond pulsars. And those are important because they're extremely stable. Up until a few years ago, they were more stable than atomic clocks for timing. So we know exactly, I mean, almost exactly when these pulses of light should be arriving at the Earth. So and by light, I mean radio waves, because yeah. I think about gotcha. electromagnetic radiation for me is all light because... In my, you know, academic career, I think of gravitational radiation and electromagnetic radiation. Which is all just... And some people do refer to anything along the, you know, gamma rays to, yeah, to radio. Yeah, it's, all, it's all just a type of light. It's light. It's exactly. light that we can't see. Exactly. Uh, so, so when you say that you use an array, yeah. you're talking about these objects that just exist. They just are there. You guys or somebody before you found them, cataloged them, pointed so to them. Jocelyn Bell actually discovered... 
pulsars. And at first they were called LGM signals for little green men. Oh, <laughs> because people... it was like, how is this so regular? Exactly. How is it so oh. regular? How is it coming from a particular part in the sky? It was really an incredible discovery. So did people uh, legit think that that was like a SETI finding? Like not oh, a SETI finding, but they were like, think, oh, this must be intelligent life. So from, from the rumors that I hear in the physics world, mm-hmm. um, there were some very serious closed door conversations about how to communicate back I'm with sure. the signal and, you know, how to respond to the signal and what the appropriate measures uh, would be. So it's like when you finally figured out what was going on, it's like an equally bummed and really excited because, oh my gosh, look at this kind of, basically this clock that nature gave us that just exists, that keeps really good time that we can use as a reference point for a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Ooh, we can, you know, co-opt this and use it to advantage our advantage. But, oh, bummer, we didn't find intelligent life. Yeah, but Jocelyn Bell's discovery was really a game changer. So one of the ways that we use pulsars, so not all of the pulsars are, are that good, but millisecond pulsars are that good. How many are there or that we know about? Do you know? Is it like a massive catalog or is it just like five? Oh, no. So... There's there's hundreds of millisecond pulsars gotcha. and but that that we've that we've detected not mm-hmm. all of them are good enough for pulsar timing arrays. So in the international community, we might use around fifty more or less uh, millisecond pulsars, but those are because we need to find ones that are especially good. Gotcha. They need to be extremely stable because we're looking for um, very small changes in the time of arrival of these pulses from the pulsars. So if if you're looking at a lag of like two milliseconds or something like that, they have to be hitting yeah. on the millisecond every Nanoseconds. Time. Yeah, We're exactly. looking for nanosecond wow. deviations. See, that's crazy that you even have tools that can measure nanoseconds. Like yeah. to me, and like, which is funny because we probably have had that for quite some time. But the idea that we can be that specific with our uh, measurement is pretty dope. Yes, yeah. these these pulsars are are amazing. And what's important also is for them to be stable clocks over extended periods of time. So the gravitational waves that you can look for with an array of these pulsars are very low frequency. And that's because if you think about the electromagnetic parallel, so you think about something like Arecibo, this massive radio telescope, it has to be really big because the wavelengths coming into it are big and Mm. you have to be able to focus them. With pulsar timing arrays, our gravitational wave detector is massive. It's galactic scale. The pulsars are all in our galaxy and they're about 3,000 light years away. So one of our detector arms, the distance between the Earth and the pulsars is around 3,000 light years. And these are distributed all around us, all over the sky. So we have this massive kind of octopus looking (sighs) detector, right? Where you have all of these arms around you and the detector is the size of the galaxy. It's, how is that a thing? Like, how does that... So, please explain this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's important here <laughs> is that we have these really long arms to detect very uh, low-frequency gravitational waves. So these very low-frequency gravitational waves come from, for example, supermassive black holes when they first start orbiting each other, right? So when they're in their very kind of slow in-spiral phase... Um, and their periods are around 10 years, for example, maybe maybe 20 or 30, but al- along that order of magnitude. Then they start, you know, you have these really, really low frequency gravitational waves. And so for one of those gravitational waves to go through the solar system, mm-hmm. um, 
if you want to observe the whole thing, then you have to wait, you know, 10 years, 20 years, something like that. Because that's and, how long it takes to yeah, travel. Yeah, and so you really need your clocks to be stable over that period of time. And so how does the, the, the and maybe this is too technical, but how does the, the little spinny beacon guy actually detect like what are, what are you measuring? So what we do, what we <laughs> we measure, we measure the time of arrivals, right? So we know when um these when these little flashes from the mm -hmm. pulsar should arrive and we measure when they do arrive mm -hmm. and we can see changes in the time of arrival and so over if, the over that period of observation. So if you see a blip, like if you see something it sh should be here, should be here, should be here. It's more now like, it's here. like what exactly what does that kind tell of, you? It, it, the delay happens slowly over the course of your total observation time, which is like 20 years, something like that. Right. Exactly. It depends on the pulsar. It depends. You know, some pulsars have been monitored longer than other pulsars. The Australians right now um, have monitored uh, a particular pulsar for almost 30 years. They have an amazing, you know, uh, kind of. They have an amazing data set on this on this one pulsar. And do you use that data, or do you use kind of different data from all over the place? We we do both. So there's there's three main pulsar timing arrays, and um, there's a um, a North American one called Nanograv. Mm -hmm. Then there's the European pulsar timing array, the EPTA, and then there's the Parks pulsar timing array in Australia. That's the PPTA. And together we share our data, and we form the international pulsar timing array. So we'll soon, once the Australians have finished uh, extracting all the science they want from their data set, they'll share it with the rest of the community, and then we'll combine all of our data to try to look for more gravitational waves. And are there redundancies in the data? Like are some, are you, are, in North America, are you sometimes looking at the same thing so you can yeah. double check each other? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. In That's North America kind of and in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, we have some of the same pulsars. Cool. But the Australians see a totally different part of the sky yeah right and so they have um i think that there's maybe like one or two pulsars that are similar well that are the same but they're really hard to detect you would only see them for something like 30 minutes in in europe and then it's gone gotcha right? um but again i'm not a radio astronomer so <laughs> that might be wrong i hope it not. might actually be 12 <laughs> hours um <laughs> So, it's close. It's close. You know, but, in like so going back to the gravitational waves, what's important to think about is uh, these wavelengths. Um, so if you think if you think about the period, it's something like, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And so you have to be monitoring the pulsar for that long. Right. So that gives you the low frequency cutoff. But you can see things that are maybe a bit higher frequency. So there's two two things. It's at the bound. Uh, on the gravitational waves you can observe with pulsar timing arrays. One, the high frequency bound is from how many times uh, a week, a month, or a year do you monitor that pulsar? That thing is called the cadence of the observation. Okay, so that's just like how many times have you seen that beacon coming? Yeah, how many times have you said to your radio telescope, look at that pulsar, I want to take, you know, a 30-minute observation. This is going to give me my time of arrival for right now. And then you do that for... 10 or 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. So that's important. And that gives you the high frequency cutoff. So one over the time gives you the frequency. Okay. So one mm -hmm. over the, a few weeks gives you something like 100 nanohertz for, for your high frequency cutoff. And one over your total observation time, which may be around 10 years, gives you around one 
nanohertz, right? And nano, of course, is a billionth. Very small. Very, very small. So these are very uh, low-frequency gravitational waves. Okay. And so the sources for those are supermassive black hole binaries and also uh, primordial gravitational waves, similar to the ones that they were trying to find with BICEP2. Mm -hmm. But we look for them in a different way. So those would also cause these uh, deviations in the time of arrivals of the pulsars, but in, an, in a different way than the ones from the supermassive black holes. So we, we look at things called the spectrum of the radiation. And from supermassive black holes, they have a very distinct spectrum. For gravitational waves, it's also distinct, or it will be once we can get the error bars down. <laughs> <laughs> they should be distinct, but when they will be distinct is still something that we're trying to figure out, because right now we haven't found anything, or else, you know, my colleagues and I would have very nice gold medals from Shiny, Stockholm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I'm kind of taking... So I, I got to admit... The part where you got mathy on me, I got a little lost. Okay, especially sorry. compared. No, it's okay. Especially compared to like, I was like, I think I get it. And now, I guess one big question that I have, which is like going to be a broader question, is would you compare gravitational waves, for example, to, um, to like when I talk to Kit? No, you're fine. It's cool. It's okay. Sometimes cell phones ring, man. Sorry. I can't even hear it. I mean, I can feel it. Can I feel it or can I hear it? They can hear it. They're like, hey, mom. What's I up? think it might be my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need to answer? You could totally answer on air if you wanted to. You're like, I don't want to. That'd be weird. Um, uh, so, so, so when you compare, um, would you compare it? For example, when, when uh, Katie Mack was on and we were talking about um, dark matter and we were saying that, for example, we know it's there. We just don't, we can't like measure. I mean, we can measure it indirect. Like, is it the same kind of a thing where it's kind of like, is one of them more theoretical than the other? Or are they both sort of things in physics that it's, everybody accepts it within the community. These are real phenomena. And these are phenomena that we're physically measuring all the time. We just can't, you know, they're a little bit too ethereal. So we need a secondary way to, to get the data. So that's an interesting question, and I'm not really sure how to answer. So with, with dark... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dark matter. It only interacts gravitationally. And so you can see it by the way that light bends around it. And then you can infer how much matter is there. Um, That's the lensing effect, right? Exactly. Okay. Right. So you can see, for example you know, how much matter you can see. And then from the amount of, of light that's bent around the object, you can infer how much matter is actually there. And the difference between the two tells you how much dark matter is there. Gotcha. And although I'm not an expert in this field, uh, I believe that there are some experiments which are trying to directly detect dark matter. And is there no way to directly detect gravitational waves? And so there there is. And so, for example... Pulsar timing arrays and LIGO right now are the two main ways to directly detect them. So the indirect detection was watching the orbit of these uh, neutron stars, one which was a pulsar, decay. Mm. That's an indirect way of looking at it. But with pulsar timing arrays, we can see the direct effect of gravitational waves on all of these pulsars. So if we only saw this time delay for example, in one pulsar. That uh -huh. could be anything, uh -huh. right? You can come up with some sort of weird theory to say what happened. Yeah, but it if was you see wobbly. That, it was a wobbly guy. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's glitchy. It's yeah. old. <laughs> Ignore it. Actually, pulsars, when they get older, get less glitchy. They're very well-behaved. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. You like an old, pul an old pulsar. He's like, we, we he's like standby. Exactly. Yeah. We, we like, they're, they're stable. The old pulsars are stable. Gotcha. Uh, and so... Oh, I think I lost my That's train okay, of thought. That's okay, because I think that, like, <laughs> the main question that I'm sticking with right now, yeah. which is, like, probably, like, my ears were asleep for two seconds when you answered this or something. Whose gravitational waves are you looking at then? Oh, right. So that's Is right. it the gravitational wave of something nearby then that's, like, bumping into the pulsar? Or is it the pulsar's own wave that it's creating? This is what I'm confused by. Uh, yeah, okay, okay, good question. So the gravitational waves that pulsar timing arrays look for are mm -hmm. these, you know, they have periods of 15, 20, 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. Those are from supermassive, for example, from supermassive black hole binaries. So that's from shit that's huge, really far away, yeah. and probably pretty old. And really like, massive. Whoosh, exactly. Going through the universe. like whoosh, exactly. And then you've got these little guys that are like, pew, 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 and they <laughs> get bumped by one of them. Yeah, so they get bumped, and then the signal, but also the signal that the Earth gets bumped, uh -huh. right? And the signal that bumps the Earth uh, that affects all of the pulsars in the array because all of their little light flashes arrive at the Earth at a particular time, right? Mm -hmm. And if you see that bump happening at the Earth and you know that there's a particular correlation that, gravita that uh, general relativity predicts for a correlation between all of the pulsars mm -hmm. in your array, then you can say, well, that's the smoking gun, right? And so so we know exactly how gravitational waves would correlate if they were present in all of these pulsars by perturbing their signals at the Earth. So if if this gravitational wave, for example, transits at the Earth, it would affect all of the uh, signals at the Earth from the pulsars uh, in a very particular way that would be very difficult to replicate 
any other way. And a, like a predictable way. Like it's a way very that the predict- model tells you what should happen, then if it happens, and then if it happens like again, then you're like, okay. This yeah, is yeah. So if it happens, then, then you're golden. But then as it keeps happening, your signal gets better and stronger. And so has this happened yet? No. Okay. And so, but we thought that this happened in bicep two, or this was another type of detection. So bicep two was looking for um, the primordial the, ones, the, the primordial ones. gravitation wave signature, so and that it was, was looking low at, on the low frequency. That's a very low frequency. Gotcha, gotcha. Very low frequency. In uh, the well, they're, they're different parts of the frequency spectrum, mm-hmm. right? So we this this primordial signature is present across the whole gravitational wave band. Um, you know, from from nanohertz to to kilohertz, where LIGO is, and um, <clears throat> and bicep two was looking at the, and, and the bicep nanohertz side of it. Well, no, so e- even smaller than that. So oh. there's 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 different scales that these perturbations gotcha. are are present on, and so um, the cosmic microwave background has these gravitational wave perturbations that happen. At um, at these different angular scales, and I'm trying not to get too technical here. Are they like? But we know exactly where they should happen. Femtohertz. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I know prefix. <laughs> so, okay, so, so, the, so maybe maybe to, to to broaden up a little bit, yeah. just so that we don't get too technical. What we kind of found is that it looked like they had gotten these signals, and yeah. it looked like these signals mimicked what they expected. Um, if it were uh, a primordial gravitational wave. Turns out something else that looks like that signal is like stuff that's happening in our own That's right. It was system. dust. It was dust. dust in the galaxy. Oh, in our own galaxy, not yeah. our own solar system. Yeah, okay. it was dust, dust in the galaxy, and it polarized it very cruelly. <laughs> It was just one of it, those things where it lined up. It's like it's like the guy at the microscope who's the first guy to ever look at something, you know, something that's alive, and then he's got an eyelash that's like in the way, and then he's <laughs> like, "Oh, I call thee the corpuscle of eye." Or, but it or turns out I, it was just his imagine eyelash. you were looking for something that looked exactly like an eyelash, yes. and then you just happened to have an eyelash. But then, you know, you didn't you didn't actually see the eyelash. You saw your own eyelash. You didn't see the thing that you thought that you were going to see yes. that also looked the same. And this is, and it just, just turned, it was like a, a horrible fluke. Well, it was just because, so so one of the reasons why is because BICEP2 only had uh, data at one frequency. So uh, Planck, which is a satellite which did the follow-up observations, had uh, data at lots of different frequencies. And so they could see how the sky looks in all of these different frequency bands. And so they can really get a better handle on the dust. And so it was, the the dust is really what killed this experiment. Well, not killed it. It's just not a direct observation uh, of this anymore. But it doesn't mean that people don't believe in inflation anymore, that it's not a great theory. It still is. It's like if Higgs, if the Higgs field wasn't, you know, they couldn't find the Higgs boson. People wouldn't think that the Higgs field didn't exist. They would just keep looking. Like that time they didn't find it. Let's try and figure out another way to find it. So, so guys, this is why reliability and validity are both important in science. This is what you take your stats classes and you realize that you got to and then when you try exactly. to reproduce it and it doesn't work, then you you can't sit there and still make that claim. You've got to kind of step back and be more cautious about it. There's still a chance that that is what they were measuring, right? But it's it's dwindling by the day. Oh, it's gone. 
I saw well, the look on your face. It's gone. It's that's it was dust. It it was most likely dust. It was most likely. It dust. was most likely dust. And moving forward, they can keep taking data and they can keep working towards finding that signal. It doesn't mean that the experiment is dead. I mean, they might have to make their uh, equipment more sensitive and maybe there's um, some, some future work yeah. that's going to happen there. It doesn't mean that they'll never find it using that method. They just haven't found it yet. Well, now and that they know what the dust looks like, then they can, they can use, you know. <laughs> now, now that, now that the these dust. two experiments are sharing their yeah. data. That, see, that's that, cool, too. That's a good outcome. That's, that's a good outcome. key. But that's you know what? Key. You don't work on bicep, too. Why are we talking about bicep, too? <laughs> we were talking about the cool ways that you are, um, that you and your colleagues are basically still attempting at this point to get um, direct evidence of these gravitational waves because yeah. it hasn't happened yet. That's which, right. Whether you understand the math, whether the science is still kind of murky, uh, what a cool, th I mean, you do, obviously, <laughs> as a general you, the people listening, how cool is it, you guys, that, like, imagine, I'm sure some of you actually do this, which is freaking awesome, but, like, those of us who are lucky enough, I'm not one of them, again, I'm, the pronouns are getting confusing right now, um, <laughs> how cool to be working on something that is totally uncharted, like, nobody's done it yet so yeah, when it happens it'll be the first time it's ever happened it's 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 awesome and it sucks because <laughs> <laughs> it keeps not happening yeah, exactly right? <laughs> so it's awesome to try to think of all of the things that we might see you know and to predict the things that we might see that's a real thrill when you can come up with this new idea and you can tell people how to test it and people start testing it and you just kind of wait and see and it's just a waiting game to see if that's going to work out or not. It's a wonderful thing about science when you have this awesome idea and you write it down and you know your peers look at it and they say okay this makes sense or or this might not be your best idea <laughs> try <laughs> again. Um, and then and then you know having these ways to test it and just waiting for those results to come back. Sometimes it takes longer than other times, right? For gravitational waves, we don't really know um, what level the gravitational wave background is at. So whereas before I was mentioning single sources, just mm -hmm. a single binary, yeah, uh, two supermassive black holes orbiting each other, there's actually, you know, those are happening all around us in the whole universe. And it makes this kind of noisy background, which makes... These little ripples like on the surface of a pond on a windy day. Yeah, and like how hard to point to exactly what the source of each of those ripples exactly. is. Exactly. So together they make a background that also has very distinct characteristics. And those characteristics in turn depend on the sources. And we're still trying, we, because we don't know what the amplitude of that background is, and that'll give us a lot of information about the source population, about these supermassive black hole binaries. But because we, do, we don't know where that is, I can't tell you how long it's going to be before we detect gravitational waves from these sources. This sounds so hard. Like, not hard, like hard to understand, even though it is hard to understand, but also kind of easy because you're a really great communicator. But it just sounds hard to do. It's like, really hard to do. And it takes a lot of people a lot of time to try to figure out how to do this. I work with a lot of really smart people at a really great research institute. And, and you collaborate with people all over the yeah, world. Not even at your institute. Like oh. other <laughs> institutes and other people. And oh, even absolutely. I have colleagues all over the planet. 
Because yeah. as you're telling me this and you're using the pond Ripley example, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if I were a scientist who was tasked with trying to calculate and observe ripples on a pond, that sounds impossible. I know it's not because there are people who are like really awesome at fluid dynamics who have like amazing modeling systems. But beyond that, in my mind, that seems insurmountable. Like that's like, holy shit, how am I ever going to make sense of all of this? So the fact that then you're you're using that as a metaphor, that's like a that's metaphor. the easy example yeah. for this really complicated thing that's happening at at values that are hard for us to cognitively understand. Yeah. And using signals that are, you know, signals that are based on other things bumping into other things, and then you're getting the data. So it's kind of passed down indirect. And and you're using tools that aren't even tools that you built. I mean, you do use tools that you built, but they're like other things that just exist in the sky. You're like, that's a cool clock because it is, and I'll use you. That's to, why, to help me understand. That's why I think it's such a beautiful experiment. It is very cool. Because when you first mentioned, oh, it's like this detector that's the size of the galaxy, I was like, I don't, we can't, uh, we don't have the capacity to build something that big, Kiara, <laughs> like that's you're right. on we, drugs. We, we, <laughs> <laughs> we, can't, we can't build it, but that's the beautiful thing. It's already there. That it's is probably already my, there. That's my favorite part. A, because it's sort of the part I understand the best. But B, because it is really, really beautiful that we have managed to use nature in such and learn from nature in such a predictable way. And that nature gave us these beautiful clocks that were discovered by a PhD student, Jocelyn Bell, who, you know, had who was stubborn enough to really want to understand what she was looking at and discovered this this really beautiful thing. She's one of my heroes for sure. She was just, you know really stubborn, really looked into it and eventually figured out what it was. And that's science. You and stick that's, to your guns. And it's hard to do. I mean, we think about the things we do in our everyday life where something is like a weird little aberration or something doesn't sit right or it doesn't seem right. And we ignore all of them because otherwise we would be too overwhelmed. You're cooking something and you're like, why did it do that thing? Or you're writing and then there's like a weird blotch on the paper. And we never think to go like, that one tiny little aberration that is bothering me. I shall focus all of my time on Because most <laughs> people go, eh, just, I don't know, just kind of ignore that and we'll move on and we'll focus on the other thing that we're supposed to be studying. But that's how these major breakthroughs happen is that somebody goes, oh, that's weird. Exactly. I think I'll spend the next year trying to figure that's out That's how why. these discoveries happen. <laughs> Someone says, oh, that's funny. Yeah. I love it. It's so great. So, okay. I don't know if we, if there's more to talk about, there probably is, which I always end every podcast being like, I need to have you back so we can dig <laughs> into this more. Hopefully, um, hopefully those who are listening, I think got a good primer, which is what I was I hope really so. hoping to be able to get across. I know I did. I learned a lot sitting here, but uh, before, um, I, because I've taken so much of your time and it's like late at night and you're hungry before I let you go, I have to, um, tell you that I end every podcast the same way. Um, and it is by asking my guests two questions, always the same two questions. And so I'd love to hear your answers to these two questions, putting you on the spot a little. Um, and you can answer them in any context, whether it's, you know, your work, you personally, or a global thing, a social thing, a political, whatever. I want to know, A, what is the thing uh, with regards to the future that you're most concerned about? What keeps you up the most at night? What is, you know, the thing that bothers you the most? And And on the flip side of that, you know, what are you most kind of excited about? What are you most optimistic about? So what keeps me up at night, I guess, what, what I worry about for the future is that people think that we're not the captains of our own ships and 
in charge of our own fate uh, with respect to the planet. And to a certain extent, we are. And global warming is something that I think is is really scary in the sense that some people are trying to convince themselves that there's nothing we can do about it. And they have this, this fatalist mm-hmm. uh, perception. And while I'm not a climate scientist, I know that over 99% of climate scientists agree that this is man-made and we need to fix it. And we are all responsible for doing this. Everything that you do in your life, from the car that you drive to how much you leave your lights on to the biodegradable or non-biodegradable products that you use, everything that you do impacts the planet. And it's easy to think that we're these really insignificant things and how is what I'm doing important or how is it going to make a difference? But it does make a difference. And if we all do something, you know, we may be able to really turn the tide on on things like climate change, even though right now I, I despair because mm-hmm. I think that this has been an issue for a really long time and it's an inconvenient truth. You know, people find it easy to ignore, you know, even that there's a drought in California because yeah. no one's telling you how long you should take in the shower. But then you see these satellite photos and you see the reservoirs are empty and and if you drive from from LA to San Francisco, you know, it's just desert and where there used to be, you know, orange groves, there's now just these big stubs of of leftover, you know, fruit farms. So it's it's real and and everyone is responsible. I'm responsible. You're responsible. My husband is responsible. It's it's really important for us to see that we are responsible and we can also do something. So so really for you it is two sides of the same coin. You're you're both kind of like you said, despairing about it and and really concerned about it, but you're also optimistic because you know that we have the capability to make change. Yeah, it's just maybe not profitable. And that's something else that <laughs> I'm deeply concerned about. As am I, as am I. I am very um I'm very pro-regulation in that sense because I do think that if left to our own devices, um it's we will be greedy until it kills us. You know what I mean? And and not just we, I mean, but corporations are people. Uh, <laughs> that that in itself is extremely disturbing. It's extremely it's disturbing. Extremely Citizens disturbing. United disturbing. is extremely disturbing. But one thing that we do have to remember is that corporations are run by people. Exactly. It is people at the helm. People run it and people can make changes as long as, you know, the population and the masses demand it. And I think that we need to demand change and not in a kind of meek way, but in a really serious way or else the planet will survive. It's not the planet I'm worried about. It's humankind. We'll just, you know, create this new environment, which is perfect for some other species, but not for us. And that's what I'm worried about. It's true. The cockroaches will inherit the earth. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a true Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. All right. So what what I'm uh, looking forward to the Mm -hmm. most I love technology. I love everything about technology. I can't wait for my home to know, you know, exactly what temperature I want it to be at. And I want it to be, you know, off the grid and green. And I Mm. want to make use of all of the, you know, free energy that we theoretically have access to. 
I, you know, love Star Trek and I want everything to be like Star Trek, which is maybe very idealistic uh, of me, but I, I think it's possible. And, and I just can't wait for, for the future to see, to see what I can't even think about. If you told me when I was a kid that every night I would read my Kindle and this was made by e-ink and that me looking at a page is the same as having the battery off because, you know, these these ink particles aren't, well, particles in a sense, aren't, aren't <laughs> moving on my page. You know, it, it blows my mind and it's, it's so awesome. Or that my whole CD collection would fit on my phone and my phone can do almost everything for me. I mean, this stuff is so awesome. And if that stuff has happened between me being, you know, 15 and 30, I mean, what's going to happen in the next 50 years? I honestly, I can't wait. I'm really excited for the future if we can make it that far. <laughs> you are making me so excited. You're make my one fear though is that I'll be like my grandma is and I'll be like I I can't understand this newfangled technology. I, I want <laughs> my me iPhone back. My back. IPhone. Yeah, exactly. The 4S. <laughs> <laughs> it's too big. That will happen. You know that will happen to us. Well, I think it's I can't wait until it's it's seamless until, you know, there's no distinction between us and Thor, you know, yeah. where it's just everything is so seamlessly integrated and we don't even notice it around us anymore. And I think that that'll be really awesome. It's really cool. You know, that's that's where I think this kind of this new acronym, this STEAM acronym really comes into play. What's you know? STEAM? We talk a lot about science, technology, engineering, and math. But oh, you, STEM. But when you add the arts... And you call it STEAM, oh. uh, which I have problems with in some respects, but in other respects, I really embrace. Um, that's why it's so important, because when we talk about technology really changing our lives, it's only partially the newest and the greatest and the thing it can do. And it's partially how intuitive is it? How is it designed, yeah. like you said, to be seen? And that's not passive. That is an active decision that very intelligent people are making yeah. to make our lives easier and to make us be able to just pick up a tool without reading the manual yeah. and just use it. And that's, yeah. that blows my mind. That's I, like think, the, I think that's that so laptops cool. will become obsolete. You'll just mm -hmm. have smart surfaces all over the place. All <gasps> your stuff will be in the cloud. I'll sit at your table and just, I don't know, maybe use my fingerprint and then it'll just kind of pop up like it's a, like it's a terminal window, right? And we'll, or, we'll be able to get rid of these shitty old microphones. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, go, hopefully the houses won't be bugged with they, really. You know they will. We'll go, <laughs> and then the thing that's recording in your brain, we'll, we'll just, you know, put that straight out to, okay, now it's getting dystopian. I'm freaking out. Uh-oh. All right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining. I, um, Thanks for having me. I want to make sure, and you tell me if, if you want to, but usually when I have people on the podcast, I like to make sure they can give their social media information out so that people can contact them, read the work that they do. I don't know if you ever blog or if you ever do any popular science communication of the work that you do, but definitely if you you know try to curate your Twitter or your Facebook and, and tell people what's going on, let them know where they can find that. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I'm gravitate underscore to underscore me. Gravitate to me. Oh, I love it. Because I love gravity. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I've also got a website where I have all of my uh, research and also my publications. And that's chiaramingarelli.com. 
Wonderful. Perfect. I'm actually clicking that in right now so I can <laughs> link to it. So that will also be a uh, link to in the notes, not the notes, but the, um, the metadata on the show. So you guys can check that out when you click on the episode. And if people are really interested in pulsar timing arrays, I'm teaching um, a summer school course at Caltech this week uh, on pulsar timing arrays. And that is being recorded. Oh, cool. And on my website, it should have a link to it. So you'll have an hour and a half of introduction to gravitational waves, but from a slightly more uh, mathematical approach for those of you who like to talk really nerdy. Talk nerdy. I love it. Thanks for that. That was good. <laughs> I'm looking at your website right now, and it's really beautiful. We need to talk about that, too. Is this a Squarespace website? Can I ask you? No, that? it's Weebly. Oh, <laughs> Well done. Thanks. All right. Okay. We're done nerding out. I'm so glad that you joined. It was really fun for me. It was really fascinating. I love to be able to do kind of a harder science episode um, periodically and, and, and you know, push my brain, push the limits of my brain. So thank you for, for joining. Thank you for doing that. I know that the listeners are going to have a lot of fun with this one too. I hope so. It was my pleasure to be here. It was so good. So everybody who's listening to, thank you once again for coming back week after week and supporting the show, listening, spreading the word. You guys are amazing. I couldn't do it without you. I wouldn't want to because it'd just be me talking to nobody. So that'd be weird too. But um, thank you again for coming back week after week. I'm looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.